Let me say a word about Teacher Appreciation Day. You don't do anything at all in this class. I mean, this is this would be ridiculous to do anything in this class. There are people though who are un, un uh, I guess unsung heroes in the church who have given their life to teaching Sunday school classes. People have taught for literally years. Think of people like Dr. Merrill and uh, you know, others like that. And they don't have a class like ours. They just have people come and get the teaching and soak it up. They may thank the man at the end, but please don't do anything for me. And I'm saying that seriously. Thank you is enough. Now, let's talk about something really good. Tom and Faye had their 55th anniversary. So uh, the next celebration they have is going to be their 75th. So that's a long time from now, really. 55 minus 25 was 30. Do you remember when you had the 30th anniversary? You don't remember that? Well, most people think time flies and Faye's lost time. I guess when you live with Tom, you wouldn't remember your 30th uh, I don't know if you got the email, I think most of us got the email, but uh, Bata, who sits back at the table where the Sowers and Cleveland is, raise your hand back there. Yeah, his sister died, and she died in Ethiopia, and I was hoping that he would be here today. He may have had to go to Ethiopia. So you, you recognize Bata when you see him next, make sure you say something to him. You know, when we have somebody in our family that dies, oftentimes, that we know really well, we do a lot of things for how about somebody that sits in the corner that you don't know, and their brother or sister or wife or somebody like that dies? Sometimes we just sort of ignore those people. So it's really important that when he comes back, we really let him know that he's part of this class. Because a lot of times a new person comes in, and if they don't get acclimated very quickly, and six or seven people don't get up and really welcome them, ask them, invite them to sit at their table rather than them having to find a table over in a corner somewhere. Uh, they come, they enjoy the teaching, they enjoy certain things about the class, but sometimes they don't feel part of it. So let's make sure we, we make Bata feel part of the class. Um, let me say something else. <clears throat> We're Sandy. Now Sandy, you take a box of food or two down there? Thank you so much. Those two mothers are going to be ecstatic. Thank right. you, thank you, thank you. They'll be able to live for two weeks, even with all the kids. That's good. Uh, if you couldn't hear Sandy, she said she's taking boxes of food for two families. She's going to take care of them for about two weeks. These are not shirkers, these people that she's giving the food to. She gives the food to people who really need it. She's able to look at the apartment complex, see who really needs it. And even if a mother or father's on drugs, guess what? The kids need it, don't they? So uh, she's taking care of them, and it's through our class and our giving of the cans and the dollars. So please remember that. Okay, let's take our Bibles and open to Revelation 5. We are in a study on the book of the Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse. Greek word, which simply means an unveiling or a revelation. Something that was hidden that is now revealed. And that's what we're getting in this book. <clears throat> And last week in chapter 4, John had a heavenly vision. He was caught up into heaven in a vision-like experience. 
And he sees God sitting on the throne and all the things that surround the throne of God in heaven. And when he goes up there, he receives a message. And in chapter 4 and verse 1, it says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, blaring out, speaking to me, saying, Come up here! Maybe he says it nicer than that. And uh, I will show you, and this is what the voice said, I will show you things which must take place after this. So when John gets to heaven, he's going to discover things that are going to take place among the churches and to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor that you see in chapters 2 and 3, and this will prepare them for the things that are coming upon the earth. So now we go to chapter 5, and in this vision he sees something else. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A scroll, that's a rolled up parchment, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, a scroll was the way individuals sent messages, what we would say today, through the mail, uh, back in Bible times. They didn't have stationery like we had, they had parchment skins, and they would usually they would figure out how much they want to write, and they would cut that length of skin. Some of the skins were cut at 15 feet or 17 feet or 20 feet. If you had a real long letter, you were going to write. And you couldn't put that in an envelope, so you'd roll it up. And so this is a rolled up piece of parchment. And on this parchment, from back in 4.1, is going to be found the things that are going to happen upon the earth that these seven churches in Asia Minor are going to experience. Now, I want you to notice two things about this scroll. The first thing I want you to notice, in fact, I might show you a few more things, but the first thing I want you to notice, it's written on the inside, on the front, and on the back, uh, which was very unusual. Usually you only write on one side of a parchment. But evidently, there's such an inordinate, inordinate amount of material that needs to be revealed that they are going to use both sides of this scroll. The second thing I want you to notice in verse 1 of chapter 5 is, is that it is sealed, which is the way the early, uh, is the way ancient believers and others uh, secured their correspondence. You would seal it. You would seal it with a seal. You'd roll that scroll up. You would tie a string around it into a knot. And then over this knot, you would put a doblet of warm wax and then you would press your signet ring on that wax. That was like your return address. You knew who it came from based on the particular signet ring. And that secured the document. And that meant that it could only be read to the party to which it was sent could not be read by unauthorized individuals. Now we do this when we write a letter today and we put it in an envelope and we lick that envelope and we seal it. If that envelope arrives at its destination opened, we know something's gone wrong. Somebody's opened that letter and it's very suspicious. So to seal something is to secure it. 
Now, because licking an envelope is not very secure, you could actually steam envelopes open, couldn't you? I bet you, how many in this room has ever tried to steam an envelope open? Yeah. I mean, you were trying to find out what's written to somebody. That's why when we really want to secure an envelope, send an envelope in a secure manner, we use a courier. Or we send it special delivery. And Gene Blaylock knows about that. He's taken many a scrolls wrapped up and put in tubes and delivered them to other locations and put it right in the people's hand. Huh? You don't know how to open those tubes too? But, you know, we're so concerned about security uh, that we will seal things and we make sure it gets to its destination. That's why sending emails is not a good way of really sending information if you do not want somebody to know what you're saying because it can be hacked and people can read it. We're, we want things that are secure. So even in our, in our medicine, what do we have? We have tamper-proof bottles that are secured. And there's always a little sign, a little notice on the medicine table. Not to be taken if the seal is broken. So the way they secured things was through this process. It was a string, the wax, the signet ring. But this seal has seven seals. This letter has seven seals. So you have this long scroll, you have a seal here, a seal there, 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 and a seal there, and a seal there. Seven different ones. So if one person, if you could just happen to tamper with one and get it open, you're still in trouble because you can't see it. Seven seals, very, very secure. Which speaks to the audience that's reading this because the Romans had a law, the Roman law, required that if you were uh, writing a last will and testament, which is something that's very secretive, you do not want anybody to read that last will and testament until the person dies, isn't that right? Their law required the last will and testament to be sealed seven times. So this is a very secure document. And this is going to contain this information about future events. And notice also that the seal is in God's right hand. This is God's scroll, or that scroll is in his right hand. This is God's scroll. It's information that he plans to reveal, but it has not yet been opened. So now the narrative continues. Look at verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Well, who's worthy to open the seal? And to loose its seals, of the scroll, and loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, not human, not angel, not demon, was able to open the scrolls or to look at it. So, in order to open the seal, you have to be worthy. That's what it says in verse 3. It says, no one in heaven was able to open the seal, was able to open. You see that word? No one was able to open. And then it says in verse 2, no one was worthy. To be worthy means you have to be authorized. Otherwise, you're not worthy to open that. And if you're authorized, then guess what? You're able to open it. So if I have a last will and testament, there's only one person authorized to open that will if I die. And that's the executor. That's the person that's authorized, therefore they're worthy and they're able to open it. No one else can open that. So they said, well, we can't find anybody who's authorized and thus able to open the scroll. So we get John's reaction. He says, so I wept. It means he wept and he kept weeping. Because no one 
was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look on it. Now why is John crying like this? Why is he anguished? Why does he throw a little fit? Well, because the information in the scroll is going to tell those churches what's going to come upon the earth and tell them how to prepare for it. And if this scroll can't be opened, those churches are going to face persecution and not know what to do. So he's concerned about the churches that he's writing to. He's concerned for their welfare. And so he says he begins to weep. It tells us how he gets caught up emotionally in this whole vision that he has. And he knows that the churches need this information. And there's no one that can open it. And he just begins to weep. And then verse 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Or a good way of saying it is, Stop your crying. Now, why do you think the elder says to John, Stop your crying. This is an emotional nit fit that you're going through. That's what I think he's saying. Because back in chapter 4 and verse 1, John was told that he would, it would be revealed to him what's on, going to come on the earth. Isn't that right? You're going to learn. And guess what? Now he starts crying. Oh, I'll never learn. I'll never learn. No, I He says, stop your crying. You've been told that you're going to learn. So John has to be rebuked. And he said in verse 5, Look! Look over there! Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. These are Old Testament titles for the Messiah. Back in Genesis 49, he's called the King of Judah, or the Lion. Lion is the King. The King of Judah. And the Root of David means he's a descendant of David. He has the right to have hold David's throne. So he says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the Messiah. And then look what he says about the Messiah. He has prevailed. Now that word prevailed is the same word that's used over and over again in chapters 2 and 3, which means overcome. He has conquered. He's been victorious. Remember the church says, he that overcomes shall receive crown of life. He that overcomes shall be given the manna. He that overcomes shall have everlasting life. Well, guess what? He says, look, don't worry, John. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's overcome. He's prevailed. He's conquered. He's victorious. And what's the purpose? What's the result of this conquering? He has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. So, by virtue of overcoming, this person identified as a lion and the root has the ability, is worthy, is authorized to open the scrolls, which means this. Had he not overcome, he would not have been worthy to open the scroll. Okay? So he had overcome, and this is what makes him worthy of opening the scroll. And so John says, in verse 6, I looked up, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a what? A lamb. The elders said, look, a lion! John looks up and he sees a 
the land. The only lion in the book of Revelation is found right here. And that lion is a lamb. So, a lion is somebody that would pounce on its prey and overtake it. Triumph. Be victorious. And that's what the Jews thought the Messiah would do. That he would walk into Rome and he would conquer Rome and set up the kingdom of God on earth. And John's expecting to see a great big lion king, like Richard the Lionheart. He's going to, some tremendous warrior. And so he turns to look at the lion and he says, I saw a lamb. They're one and the same. Look at the location of that lamb in verse 6. In the midst of the throne. Right in the middle of the throne. In chapter 4 he didn't see it, but now he sees it. Suddenly his eyes are opened. It's a revelation. There's a lion. There's a lamb in the middle of the throne. Look at its position. I looked and it was in the middle of the throne. And it says, and it stood. You see that in the middle of verse 6? It stood. It's position. Now look at the description of this lamb. It stood as a lamb. Right in the middle of verse 6. As though it had been what? Slain. Now wait a second. It says that the lion and the root of David had conquered. It had prevailed. It had won the war. But when he looks, he sees a lamb. It's a lamb that has been what? Slain. That's not winning anything. That's losing, isn't it? That word slain is the same word that's translated murdered. He saw a lamb that had been slaughtered, a lamb that had been murdered, and it's the same word that's going to be used in chapter 6 and later on to describe Christians who are killed by the beast for their faith. So, here is a lion that has prevailed. John looks and he sees a lamb that was slain, and therefore we know that the victory over Rome and the powers of evil come through the Messiah's death. A victory that results from the Messiah's death. Now, from Rome's perspective, they found Jesus guilty of some crimes, they executed him, they killed him, and from their perspective, who's won? They won. They got rid of this troublemaker. Jesus is defeated. But John says, although he was defeated, he was slain. What's he doing? Oh, he's standing. He's standing up again. They killed him, but guess what he's doing? He's back on his feet. Now think about this. Rome threw everything that they could at this guy, Jesus. And the, their ultimate weapon was death. We'll put you to death. We'll shut you up. That'll finish you once and for all. They, gave, they threw everything they could at him. They killed him. And guess what? He stood up again. Now who's won? Rome or Jesus? And he wins by being slain. 
It's not the resurrection that's the victory. It's the being slain that's the victory. Now watch this. Watch this. Jesus comes before Pilate. Pilate says, don't you know I could kill you or I could let you go? That's all up to me. And the writer says, now he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. He said, hit me with everything that you can. And he stood there, and instead of fighting back like a lion pouncing on its enemy, he stands there like a lamb. And when he stands there like a lamb, he doesn't fight back. Instead, what he does, in that moment, he trusts God. He says, Lord, I'm just trusting you. And Rome killed him. God honored his faith, and three days later, God raised him from the dead. So, he wins by being slain, and while he's being slain, he totally trusts the Lord. And here's the thing. If this is how Jesus conquered, by dying and trusting God to raise him, how are those seven churches going to conquer he that overcomes, I will give eternal life. How are those believers to conquer? Are they to conquer by taking out their guns and saying, okay, let's go. Are they to conquer by compromising and say, well, I'll bow the knee to see them. But in my heart, I don't believe them. But at least I'll have a job. <laughs> I'll live another day to talk about it. My family will be fed. I will win this battle. No, that's not how you conquer. The only way these seven churches can conquer is the same way the Lamb conquered. And that's refusing to compromise and bowing the knee. And saying, Jesus is Lord. And then, when the persecution comes, take it. No matter what it costs. Even your life. Because God's promised if they take your life, He's going to do what? Raise you up. You will be resurrected and you too in the end will stand. So this is the, the paradox is that we conquer through death. See, through It's a non-violent victory. It's a victory that has not been won by force. It's a victory that's been won by faith. Every victory Rome won, it won by the sword. It came into a country and it would say, your country or your life? And then people would say, our country, take our country. Who bowed the knee? Because if you didn't, it took your life. Victory by force. Christ's victory was by faith. He stood there, trusted God, even though Rome hit him with everything they could, that God would raise him from the dead. So if Rome has used its ultimate weapon, and Christ has risen, how effective was its weapon called death? How effective was it? Wasn't effective at all, was it? <laughs> had no effect. It looked like they had a victory, but in reality they lost. <coughs> and this is the way to victory. So it's a lamb in verse 6 that was slain. And then look what he says about this lamb. It has, the one he saw had seven horns, which speaks of authority. Perfect authority, total authority, complete authority. That's why we have that number seven. 
He was a lamb that had complete authority. Remember what Jesus said after he was resurrected? Came to his disciples. He said, all authority has been given to me. What? How much authority? All authority has been given to me in heaven and... Oh, now who has all authority on earth? Jesus. How did he gain that authority? By dying and being raised. All authority has been given to Christ. So, who rules the world? Caesar? No. United States? No. Mubarak? No. No, you can't even rule Egypt. All people who think that they have totalitarian authority discover that in the end they have no authority whatsoever. And the one who has all authority is Jesus because he is the victor. And then the victor goes to the spoils. He has authority over all of you. And then look what it says. At the end of verse 6. He had seven eyes. This lamb. Now remember, this is all symbolic. This is not literally seven eyes. This is a vision. They mean something. He had seven eyes, and there's the explanation, which are the seven spirits of God, which means the fullness of God's presence, the spirit. Look where it's sent. Sent out into the earth. And so remember, Christ sends his spirit after he's resurrected and ascended. He sends his spirit onto the earth. He gives the spirit to the church. And as a result, the church is to go out and spread the gospel. So this sending of the spirit is linked to mission. And if Christ has given the Spirit to the church, do those seven churches have the Spirit? In chapters 2 and 3? Yes, they do. Do they have the fullness of the Spirit? Yes, they do. Is God's total power at their disposal? Yes, it is. So that's why you have to read this in light of those seven churches, in light of, light of the history. Now look what happens. The lamb takes some action. The lamb takes some action. Look at verse 7. Then he came, the lamb came, and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he walks over, when the elder says, Don't worry, the lamb has caught, the lion has caught it. I looked and there was a lamb standing and he walks over, he takes that scroll right out of God's hands. And when he does that, heaven literally explodes. And that's what those verses are about. Look at heaven's response. And when he had taken the scroll in verse 8, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell, fell down before the, the Lamb. And look what they did in verse 9. And they sang a new song. They just burst into singing and they began to worship Jesus. See. Now, look what accompanies this, this heavenly worship in verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four twenty elders fell down and before the Lamb. And look what happened. It says, each one had a harp, which is an instrument of worship. Now, to John's readers, they know exactly what this means. The harp was the instrument used in worship of the emperor cult. Remember they had all these temples to Caesar? And when you went in and you wanted to worship Caesar, a harp played and accompanied the worship. That's how Caesar was worshipped with a harp. In fact, 
In 95 AD, the same year this book was written, Domitian, the emperor, had a heart stamped onto the back of every newly minted denarius. It was a heart saying, I'm to be worshipped. And when John looks, guess what he sees? Everybody has a heart, but guess who's getting worshipped? It's not Caesar, it's Jesus. So they have these harps in their hands, each one of them. And look what else he sees. And golden bowls in verse 8, full of incense. What's that? Which are the prayers of the saints. Now think about that. Here you have these saints, these churches, these believers in chapters 2 and 3. Persecution just started. And guess what they start doing? They pray, oh Lord help! Remember like Israel prayed? Oh Lord help! Deliver us from this tyrant, Pharaoh. And these churches are praying, Oh Lord, oh Lord. And they wonder, I wonder if our prayers are going higher than the ceiling. You ever wonder that? God ever heard your prayers? He says, I looked and guess what? Those prayers hadn't only reached heaven, they were all collected in the great big bowl. God had every one of those prayer requests right there. And those prayers were being heard and those prayers from the earthly saints were being mingled and mixed with the worship that took place in heaven. And our prayers do mean something. Now look at the song that they sang in verse 9. They sang a new song. A new song, by the way, is a song that is identified in the Bible as a song that comes after a victory. Remember Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and then they sang that new song, that sweet song of salvation. They passed through the Red Sea. They all began to sing this victory song. And this is the song. We sing it in church. We say, victory in Jesus, right? That's a victory song. That's a new song. Well, they sang the song. And here's the song that they sang. They sang, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. That's the theme of the song. Worthy is the Lamb. Now, why is he worthy? Look at this. Three reasons. Number one, you're worthy because you were what? Slain. Because you were killed. Because you were martyred. Because you were put to death. That's why you're worthy. In other words, you didn't bow the knee. You could have bowed the knee to Pilate and Caesar and you could have lived. But Jesus, you didn't do that. You trusted God. That's what makes you worthy. Number two, you're worthy because you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That word redeemed is an economic word. It means you bought us, you purchased us. For God, Rome wants us. They want to control us. But through your death, we've been purchased for you. Uh, and look, at it, it's unlimited. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Everywhere that Rome went to conquer, God bought some of those people, purchased some of those people for his own. And number three, third reason why you're worthy, number 10, verse 10, you have made us kings and priests to your God. Now, that's past tense, isn't it? You've made us priests and kings. Right now, guess what those people in those seven churches are? In God's eye. Priests and kings. Guess what you are in God's eye? You're a priest and you're a king. 
You have the authority to rule, and you have the authority to represent God on earth as a priest. So, where are you a king or a priest? Well, you're a king and a priest in God's kingdom. Rome doesn't recognize these people as kings and priests, does it? But guess what? They are kings and priests. God's made them kings and priests. Did God make David a king when he was a little boy? Did Samuel anoint him with the Holy Spirit? Was David a king before he ever took the throne? He was a king before he took the throne. Was he recognized as a king? No one recognized him as a king. Was Jesus a king when he was born? Born as king of the Jews. Did anybody recognize him as a king? No. But now he's taking his throne. Now they do. Guess what? God makes these people, these believers on earth and us, kings and priests. Are we recognized that by the world? No, but guess what? We are royalty. And there's a lot of implications about that. And then look what he says about that at the end of verse 10. And we, what? Shall rule. And where will we rule? On the earth. Yeah, just as David was a king and no one recognized him, but guess what? One day he did rule, didn't he? And Jesus is a king, and guess what? One day he's going to come back to earth and he's going to rule, and guess what? One day we're going to rule on earth with him. But we've already been chosen for that profession. And we're going to reign and rule with Christ on earth. When is that going to happen? At the resurrection. At the second coming and the resurrection. But it's only for us who overcome. We don't bow the knee. We don't fight with the sword against the empire. But we take the persecution, trusting that God will keep his promise, knowing that he's already named us kings and priests, and that he will raise us, and one day we will rule and reign on the earth with him. So, he says in verse 11, Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels all around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands, which simply means myriads that couldn't be counted. Every, every being that was in heaven just begins to sing and uh, shout and praise the Lord. And they said seven things about the Lord. Each one of these things, by the way, seven things that are mentioned. Each one of these praises is a praise that Caesar received. This is the same language. So when Caesar walked in the room, look what it says in verse Worthy is the Lamb, they would say. Worthy is Caesar. But guess what? That's not what they're saying in heaven. They recognize Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So they're saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power. And when Caesar walked in the room, they said, all power to Caesar, all authority to Caesar. He doesn't have any authority compared to Jesus. <clears throat> to receive riches. Yes, all riches flowed into Caesar's coffers. Each one of these praises was a praise that Caesar received. Now, why is that important? Because when John's readers, the ones in chapters 2 and 3, the seven chapters, hear these words, they're going to, oh, that's what they say to Caesar. But guess what? In heaven, they're saying it. So here's the praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, number one, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength 
honor and glory and blessing. So, Caesar was the one who was worthy of all these things. You know why he was worthy? Because he conquered. All power resided in Caesar. But now Jesus is worthy because he's conquered, but he's conquered because he was slain. See, that's what that verse says. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. So, these churches that are reading this realize that Caesar has been upstaged by Jesus. So it means that Jesus in the end wins the game and so do the Christians. And therefore they must remain loyal. And then he says in verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and as such as were in the sea, and suddenly his mind just sort of flashes forward to the end time. And all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and forever. And that's going to be what it's like at one time. Everybody, no matter where they are, in the earth, on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, in heaven, everyone in the entire universe is going to be praising the one who sits on the throne, God the Father and the Lamb. Notice, forever. He rules forever. Of his government there shall be no end. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lived forever and ever. Now that is chapter 5. He has not opened that scroll yet. He just, this is just, this is what, this is the response just because he takes it from the Father's hand. He, he takes the scroll and he holds it up and now heaven goes crazy. He hasn't opened the scroll yet. Wait till he opens the scroll. He starts opening that scroll in chapter 6. It says, the Lamb opened one seal. So you can see how he breaks the seals and he opens them. So this scroll contains information that's important to those seven churches so that when the persecution comes against them in its full force, they will know how to respond and they'll realize that their prayers indeed are being answered and God indeed has a plan for them in the future. And the only way they can overcome is the same way the Lamb overcame, which is to put their faith in God and refuse to compromise their throne. So we'll pick up uh, next week at chapter 6 and verse 1. Lord, we thank you for this passage where we actually get a glimpse into heaven. Right now, as we think about all the problems that we face and the concerns of the world over revolution and economic disasters and all the crazy things that are going on, and we say, what in the world is happening? If we could just, for a moment, have the curtain of heaven pulled back, we would see that there's not one whit of concern. They see things so clearly. They realize that the forces, whether it's economic forces, political powers, whatever, do not control the affairs of this world you're in charge. And in the end, you are going to name yourself king and everyone's going to recognize it and bow in the Oh Lord, help us to side with you. Help us to be people of faith, not people of, of worry. Help us to realize that you have conquered. You are a, a lamb who has conquered through your death and resurrection. Oh Lord, help us to be faithful to this end as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.